0: so the crucifixion of Jesus Christ was one of the most gruesome hours in all of human history. But even though it was one of the most gruesome hours, it is the, at the same time the most glorious hour in all of human history. The reason it's the most glorious hour in human history is because through the cross, Jesus Christ paid for our redemption And so today is all about the passion of the Christ. Two weeks ago, we saw his suffering. Today, we're going to see his crucifixion. Let me catch you up to where we are in John's gospel. And so after the Jewish authorities, Caiaphas and his lot had tried Jesus illegally, testified against him dishonestly, blindfolded him shamefully, and spit in his face and punched him repeatedly, After they had their way with Jesus, they turned him over to the Roman authorities, to Pilate and his lot, who questioned him arrogantly and then scourged him ruthlessly and then mocked him incessantly, getting down on their knees and and saying, hailed king of the Jews and beating the crown of thorns into his head. And so today, we're gonna see the most gruesome or one of the most gruesome hours in human history, but again, I never want you to forget as we're going verse by verse, this is the most glorious hour in human history along with the resurrection because he did it, ladies and gentlemen, for you. So right now, if you're looking at John chapter 19, verse 16, can you say amen so I know you're there? So here we go. So he, Pilate, delivered him, Jesus, over to them, that's the Roman soldiers, to be crucified, And so they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And so after Pilate sentenced Jesus to death, the soldiers forced the Lord to carry the cross beam, the horizontal beam part of the cross, to the place of his execution. Now, I want you to picture Jesus lifts up this heavy horizontal beam and he puts it on his shoulders, right, after all that he has been through and he begins to struggle and carry this crossbar uh, to that place of execution, which Hebrews 13, 12 tells us was, was without, outside of the city gates. And so you know the story, because he's too weak uh, to get all the way outside the gate, he Can't carry the heavy crossbar. And so when you read the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they tell us, they fill in the blanks, that the Roman soldiers compelled one Simon of Cyrene to help him carry the crossbeam to that place. The place of execution was called Golta in Aramaic, Calvaria in Latin. And so from that Aramaic word, we get our English word, Golgotha, and from that Latin word, we get our English word, Calvary. And I don't know about you, but I'm really happy that the name of our church is Calvary. I'm really happy that the name of the affiliation, the network that we're involved in is called Calvary Chapel. Why? Because, ladies and gentlemen, it was a Calvary That the price of our redemption was paid for. There's so much meaning in that word. I'm so glad to be associated with that word because that's where it's all about. That's what it's all about. So the idea behind the place of the skull, Golgotha, Calvary, is that it was a place of death. And so there's an ongoing debate between Christians about the exact spot where Jesus was crucified outside the gate. Some people say that he was crucified at the current site of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, a Catholic church there in the old city of Jerusalem. Other people say, no, 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 no. Jesus was crucified at the current site of a place called Gordon's Calvary. And so if you go with us to Israel, we'll take you to both of those places. But I think it's interesting that at Gordon's Calvary, there's a rock formation on the side of a hill right there, that resembles a skull, a human skull. And so that's caused people for decades to look and see the skull and say, hey, there's a skull. That must be the place. I think it's also interesting that archaeologists right in that area, uh, John tells us that Jesus was buried in the same area where he was crucified. And so I think it's interesting that archaeologists have found a, a tomb, an ancient tomb that's dates before the time of Jesus in that area of Gordon's Calvary along with an ancient wine press as well. But here's what I want to say. Whether Jesus was crucified at the current site of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre or whether he was crucified at Gordon's Calvary, that is not what matters most. What matters most is not where he died. What matters most is that he died to pay for your sins and to pay for mine. And so praise God, he was willing to give his life for you and me. Look at verse 18, it says there, there at Calvary, Golgotha, they crucified him. And with him, two others, one on either side, and Jesus in between. And so you need to know that the practice of crucifixion was so inhumane, so cruel. Started with the Persians. Later in history, it was adopted by the Greeks. Later in history, it was adopted by the Romans, and the Romans cruelly modified it and perfected it. It was designed to slowly suffocate criminals who would eventually die of asphyxiation. So the idea is that once you're on the cross, your body sags down. And while your body is in this position, your chest cavity is restricted so you can barely breathe. So you got to push yourself up on the on the feet that have already been nailed to the vertical beam in order to get a breath. And then the, the, the weight of your body will cause you to sag down. And then you rest a little while and then you push yourself back up to get a breath, and then you fall back down. And that is what these guys would do because the Romans crucified hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people, and that's what Jesus did hour after hour. And so the idea with the Romans, as they perfected it, is that after a while, the the criminal would be so exhausted, just can't push up anymore, can't really breathe in that position, and you would suffocate. Regarding all this, Chuck Swindoll wrote Crucifixion combined four qualities the Romans prized most in an execution unrelenting agony, protracted death, public spectacle, and utter humiliation. You say, why? Because people are evil, that's why. And because the Roman Empire wanted to intimidate its subjects so that nobody would ever even think about rebelling against Rome. And so when Jesus arrived at Calvary, the vertical beam would have already been secured in the ground, ready to go. And the horizontal beam would have been dropped by he and Simon of Cyrene into the dust. The Roman soldiers at that point would have ordered Jesus to lie down on the horizontal beam and stretch out his hands. And as I was writing this message this week, I was thinking, I wonder how surprised the Roman soldiers were when they didn't have to force Jesus' hands down while he screams, no, 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 that's not what happened. You know what happened. Jesus lied down in the dust, and he willingly stretched out his arms as an act of love for the world. He willingly stretched out his arms as an act of love for you. And so, he stretched out his arms. It reminded me, again, as as I was writing the message of a picture I used to have. So, I grew up in church. I saw Jesus on the cross every single Sunday. I had no idea why he did it. And then when I was 17 years old, somebody gave me a gospel track at my high school and it explained the gospel, it explained why Jesus died on the cross. And so I met Jesus Christ in a very real way. I got saved, I accepted the gospel of grace when I was 17 years old, and I went to a Christian bookstore and I bought this picture. And the picture was a silhouette of Jesus on the cross, and at the bottom it said, and maybe some of you are familiar with this picture because it was famous back in the 80s, I asked Jesus, how much do you love me? And he said, this much, and he stretched out his arms and he died. And so it was a constant reminder as I had it on my wall every day as I looked at that of how much Jesus loves me, that he would pay the price for my sins, receive the death penalty so I would not have to die and go to hell and pay for my own sins. Thank the Lord that God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him won't perish in hell, but have everlasting life. And so as the cruel process continued, they drove those spikes into his hands on the horizontal beam, and they drove the spikes into his feet on the... On the vertical beam, and then probably with some kind of pulley system, they lifted him up for all to see. And that, ladies and gentlemen, fulfilled yet another Old Testament prophet, a prophecy. Now, I want you to see the date. So, Psalm 22, verses 16 and 17, and what is the date? Go ahead and just say it out loud. Okay. So, if you're new to the Bible, you need to see the dates because, ladies and gentlemen, this is the only book on the planet that has prophecies that are in detail fulfilled later in history. There's no other book like this. This is the only one. I know the Bible is ridiculed. I know the Bible is mocked. I know the Bible is laughed at. But you need to know that this is the only book that has been breathed out by God in the original manuscripts. And one of the ways that's proven is because of fulfilled prophecy. No other book is like it. And the reason people mock this book and they don't read it is because every time you open it up, it convicts you of sin if you don't know the Lord. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and they gloat over me. And so after they lifted up Jesus, some just stared at him. Others, sadly, they relished the moment and they began to mock the Lord. They began to boast about pretty much how great they are and how wrong he is. Matthew 27, verse 42, says that um, those that were there, some, some of the of the religious leaders that were there, they would, they would shout out, he saved others, he can't even save himself. If you're the king of Israel, the Messiah, come down off the cross right now and then we'll believe in you, etc., etc. And so Jesus was crucified around 9 a.m. And as he hung there in unspeakable agony, He struggled to breathe for six long hours. From 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. And that reminds me of yet another Old Testament prophecy. Right now, if you're listening to me, but you have a wall up, I want to humbly ask you, put the wall down. God is real. Let him speak to your heart. Isaiah, 700 BC, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement, the punishment that brought us peace. And with his wounds or by his stripes, we are healed. All, can you guys say the word all? All All we like sheep have gone astray. Listen, you will never get saved till you admit you're lost. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What does that mean? The Father laid on the Son our sins. First Peter 2.24, he bore our sins in his body on the tree. Can you imagine the sin of every human being throughout history put on Christ? Verse 10 of Isaiah 53 says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It makes me nauseated to think that there's some quote unquote evangelicals. They're not but there's some quote-unquote evangelicals who are deconstructing their faith, so to speak, and they say, no, 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 God didn't put his wrath on Jesus on the cross. That would be child abuse. Ladies and gentlemen, they've missed the whole gospel. God did pour out his wrath on the Son of God. You know why? Because he loves you and I so much, he didn't want us to pay for our sins in hell. So not only was Jesus suffering physically, He was also suffering spiritually. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. If you're grateful for the price that Jesus uh, paid for you, put your hands together right now, let him know. Let him know. We'll be doing that for all eternity. If you know Christ. Pilate also wrote an inscription in verse 19 and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And many of the Jews read this inscription. They were upset when they saw it. For the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. So in other words, Jesus was not you know, crucified in a remote place on a hill far, far away. No, 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 it was right outside the the city gates on a main thoroughfare. So a lot of people saw Jesus on the cross and this sign that Pilate made was written in Aramaic, end of verse 20, Aramaic in Latin and in Greek. And so it was customary for the Romans to write on a sign the crime the criminal was convicted of. So what did the Lord's sign say? Well, it said Jesus, that's his name, of Nazareth, that's his hometown, that's not his place of birth, which is Bethlehem, this is where he was raised, up in Galilee. And then it said, the king of the Jews. It was Pilate's one last jab at the Jewish religious leaders. King of the Jews, that was his so-called crime, which was sedition, because if you lived in the Roman Empire in the first century AD, and you said, I'm a king, they would kill you. Because in their minds, the minds of the Romans, there's no king but Caesar. And so the words that you see there on your screen in English, on the sign on Christ's cross were in three languages, Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. So Aramaic was the language of the local Jews in Judea. Latin was the language of the Roman Empire, the Romans, and Greek Greek language, um, that was the language of everybody in the Roman Empire, uh, kind of a second language for a lot of people. If you're a Roman, you knew Latin and you knew Greek, why? Because of the Hellenization of civilization, even though the Romans defeated the Greeks, the Greek culture was so loved, the Greek language was so loved, that it continued even though the Romans were in charge. Pilate had that sign nailed to Jesus' cross so that everybody who walked by could see what he had done. And it was a clear message to all the subjects the Jews who were under Pilate. And that is don't even think about rebelling against the Roman Empire or that will be your fate as well. Verse 21. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, because they were upset, don't write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate's had it up to here with these guys. They already went over you know, threatened to go over his head and tell Caesar if, they didn't, if he didn't crucify Jesus, because he didn't want to, if you remember that, from three or four weeks ago. And so he doesn't even care anymore. He said in verse 22, what I've written, I've written. Go away. Verse 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments, and they divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, and also his tunic his inner garment. But the tunic was seamless, woven into one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. And this was to fulfill the scripture which says, again, Psalm 22, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. And so a perk for doing their job as a Roman soldier was that these guys got to keep The garments of those that they crucified. And so they divided Jesus' garments into four parts. We believe his head covering, his robe, his belt, and his sandals. But then they came to the tunic, the inner garment, and they they looked at this sleeveless inner garment, and they they noticed that it's not just sleeveless, it's seamless, and it's really valuable, Uh, seamless, uh, woven together from top to bottom into one piece, and they're like, don't tear it into four pieces, let's cast lots for it. And guess what, ladies and gentlemen, (laughs) that fulfills yet another Old Testament prophecy. They divide my garments among them, for my clothing they cast lots. Now, if you're listening, please say amen here. I don't know how anybody can read Psalm 22, written 1,000 years before Christ, or Isaiah 53, written 700 years before Christ. I don't know how anybody can read those chapters and walk away and not believe that the Bible is God's Word, Jesus is God's Son, and you and I are greatly loved by the Lord. It's the truth. Stop putting the wall up. Put the wall down, humble your heart before your Creator and let Him be your Redeemer. Accept Christ today. Let Him reveal the love He has for you to you. And so, verse 25 says, But standing by the cross of Jesus were His mother, that's one lady, His mother's sister, that's the second lady. Mary, the wife of Clopas, that's a third lady, and Mary Magdalene. And so John named four ladies who stood at the foot of the cross that day. So first of all, his mom was there. She loved him so much, she doesn't care. She'll risk her life, risk her safety. She wants to support her son. And by the way, Luke 2.35, this is fulfilling yet another prophecy um, from 33 years ago. When Jesus was an infant, you remember um, the prophet said that a sword, Mary, is going to pierce your soul. And so right now, this is happening as she watches her son suffer. That sword is piercing her soul. She's there. We believe Salome is there. That's the sister of Mary, uh, the wife of Zebedee, the guy who has the successful uh, fishing business on the Sea of Galilee, uh, mom of James and John. Mary Magdalene is there. If you remember, as you read through the New Testament, she's the one who Jesus cast seven demons out of her. How I many of you guys know she's really thankful? And so Christ delivered her. She's a lifelong follower of Jesus. And Mary, the wife of Clopas, when you read Mark fifteen forty, 40, uh, by the way, Mary Magdalene, seven demons, that's Luke 8, 2, but the wife of Clopas, Mary, She's the mother of James the Younger, that's Mark 15, 40. Now think about this with me here. John, the beloved disciple, the author of the gospel that we've been going through, he's at the foot of the cross. Here's the question, where's the disciples? Where's the men? Ladies and gentlemen, guess what? When Jesus was suffering the most, who was there for him? Who was at the foot of the cross? And the answer is the women. The women. I don't know where the guys were. But, 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 but stay with me here, I wanna develop this. Have you ever loved somebody so much that you're willing to do whatever it takes even to the point of risking your own safety to help them, to aid them, to support them? And if you've got somebody in your life that you love that much, that you don't care what happens to you, that even if you're gonna put your own safety at risk, you are going to get in there and help that person, support that person, love that person. That's these women. I want you to hear this. These women allowed their love for Christ to overcome their fear of the authorities. They allowed their love for Christ to overcome their fear of being arrested and questioned as as followers of Yeshua. They allowed their love for Christ to overcome their fear of the authorities, and that's why they stood publicly for Christ in a very dangerous situation. You need to know that these ladies loved Jesus because he first loved them. And because of that mutual love relationship, they stayed with him all the way to the end. You love Jesus this morning. If you do, it's because Christ first loved you. And if you got a problem with fear in your life, if fear's been crippling you and paralyzing you from doing whatever God has called you to do, here's what you gotta do. If you're listening, say amen here. You got to focus on deepening your love relationship with Jesus Christ. Because as John will say later in one of his letters, quote, perfect love drives out fear. Perfect love drives out fear, fear of judgment, other fears as well. And so if fear is an issue in your heart and you know who you are, then focus on your love relationship with Jesus, knowing that he loved you first and that's why you love him. And keep responding to his love. Get into that place. Why? Because how do you spell love? T-I-M-E. And so spend more time with the Lord. Get serious about your faith. Take Jesus off the back burner. Put him as first place in your life and begin to spend time with him and just sit and let Christ love you. You say, I get get to my devotions, I don't feel anything. Welcome to the club. We've all had seasons like that. But ladies and gentlemen, are we just doing it for a feeling? No, we're doing it for his glory and because he's so great and because he paid the price for our redemption. And every once in a while, he'll give you the feeling. (laughs) You'll sense his presence. And you'll be overwhelmed by his love. But don't do it primarily for that reason. Do it primarily just to be a blessing to his heart and to grow and deepen in your love relationship with the Lord. And perfect love will drive out your fear. And you'll be able to move forward in whatever God's called you to do, no matter how scary that might be. Verse 26, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, that's John, standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple, John, took her, Mary, into his own home. Now, I think it's absolutely amazing. By the way, this is why we love Jesus so much. It's absolutely amazing that as he's hanging from a cross in horrible agony, both physically and spiritually, he thinks about others. (laughs) He thinks about his mom. He thinks about her welfare. What's the three main characteristics of our culture today? You guys have been listening. Me, myself, and I. Me, 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 me. You hurt my feelings? Mm. Cross me, I'm mad at you. I'm not getting my way, I'm upset. If I'm not comfortable, I complain. Did you notice Jesus is not moaning and groaning, griping and complaining, he's thinking about others even when he's in pain. See, this is how you know, one of the, re- one, one of the ways you know that you're a mature Christian is that You think about others more than you think about yourself. You wanna be a blessing to others. You wanna love others. This is what I just experienced for seven or eight days in El Salvador. Pastor Jorge Bustamante and his amazing team there on the ground. It's all about how can we bless these poor people that are all around us practically and then share the gospel with them. And so Jesus, in pain, Thinks about the welfare of his mom and he entrusts her into John's care. Now, this is interesting to me. Stay with me here. Mary had four other sons. So if you're new to the Bible, she's a virgin when she gives birth to Christ. It's one of the fundamental doctrines of Christianity that the Holy Spirit conceived Christ, the eternal word in Mary's womb before she had sex with Joseph. But then, her and Joseph got together, like every married couple, and they had sons and daughters. Jesus' little half-brothers, James, Jude, Joseph, Simon. Here's the question, why didn't Jesus entrust Mary to one of his little half-brothers? Answer, John 7, 5, because they didn't believe in him. They didn't believe he was the Messiah, and so he didn't want his mom in that kind of negative environment. He didn't want to have his mom have to hear every single day. What was big brother thinking? I knew it. Man, he had to keep pushing. We knew he would end up dead one day. He didn't want her in that environment. So what did he do? He said to John, behold your mother. And he said to Mary, behold your son. And so Jesus wanted Mary to be around John and He wanted John to be around Mary. Why? For mutual support, mutual encouragement, mutual edification. What does that teach us about our relationships today? What that teaches us is that being around our spiritual family often provides a more positive environment for us than being around our natural family. And so I don't know who I'm talking to today, but you know If I'm talking to you, if you have family members who don't know Jesus, I want to encourage you to do two things. Number one, plug into your spiritual family. That is going to be life changing for some of you. Again, Jesus wanted Mary to be around John and John to be around Mary. And he wants you to be around your spiritual family as well. And so why don't you make, it a, make a decision today that today's the day where I'm going to make my spiritual family, my brothers and sisters in Christ, a higher priority in my schedule. The author of Hebrews puts it this way. He says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And here it is, not neglecting to meet together. Now, do you guys see that? If you see it, say amen. Amen. That's the the word of God. That's prescriptive, not descriptive. What does that mean? That's a commandment from God. Not to neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day, the day of Christ's eminent return, drawing near. And so 2,000 years ago, when the author of Hebrews wrote that under the inspiration of the, of the Spirit, you had Christians who were skipping church. And so he wrote it, God wrote it, God said it through this author, if you're skipping church, stop it, you need to be around these people. He wanted them to stop neglecting their spiritual family and start Plugging in to their spiritual family regularly. Why? So that they can all encourage one another. All of us can encourage one another as we see the day of Christ's return approaching. And it's so, so, so important. You know, I addressed at 10 o'clock because people watch at 10 o'clock and what I said to everybody was, "Hey, if you're out of town on vacation, and you're watching. So glad you're here." I said, "Hey, if you're sick but you live in poor St. Lucie area and you're watching, so glad you're watching. That's great. If you live in another state or you live in another country and you're watching, we're so glad that you're here. But if you're perfectly fine and you're healthy and you live in the poor St. Lucie area and this is your definition of church—just watching once a week—you need to repent." Read the Word of God and start meeting with all of us. Get in your car next week and come to church. So half of you are clapping. That means the other half aren't convinced yet. Well, let me try to convince you some more. You know what, one of the reasons why you need to be in church? Because, ladies and gentlemen, you are uniquely gifted by God and you need to start sharing those gifts with other people. You need to start encouraging other people. You gotta get out of, out of yourself and begin to love on and bless other people. We need you here. Amen to the word of God. And so there's so many opportunities to get involved in our church family. If this is where the Lord called you to make this your church home, and that is pick one of the four gatherings, so glad that you're here actually sitting in a chair. And not just that, but if you have children, please, moms and dads, let them learn about Jesus on their level. Infant to fifth grade, all this stuff is over their heads and they're just gonna think church is like, kinda boring if you're fourth or fifth grade. It's like, I don't understand Golgotha, what, what? <laughs> let them learn about Jesus on their level in a fun, exciting environment. And if you have students, or if you are a student, middle or high school, come on Wednesday night. It's an amazing environment with Pastor Andrew who spoke last week. And then if you're a young adult, you're out of high school, 18 to 25, come on Tuesday night. They have such a strong group. And so, Calvary classes are available, Calvary groups, Calvary serve teams, go on a mission trip, on and on. There's so many opportunities for you to plug into your spiritual family CalvaryPSL.com. Now, if you have family members and they don't know Christ, number one, uh, plug into your spiritual family, but then number two, pray for your natural family that doesn't know the Lord. Did you guys know that Jesus never gave up on his family members that were lost? Never gave up on them, and neither should we give up on our lost family members as well. And so, what I think is so cool is that after his resurrection, In Acts, Luke wrote about a prayer meeting, and guess who's there? Check this out. It says, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and who? His brothers. Guess what, everybody? The little four half-brothers that I talked about earlier, James, Jude, Joseph, Simon, they got saved. Praise the Lord. And so don't give up on your natural family. You say, you don't know my family, Pastor. Oh man, they're so far gone. No, 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 they're not so far gone. Nobody's so far gone that God can't reach them with his grace. And so while, as long as they have breath in their lungs, keep praying, keep loving, keep living in Christ and around them, and you'll see what God does. James became the pastor of the church of Jerusalem. Jude, Jesus' little half-brother, wrote a book in the back of your Bible. James wrote a book in the back of your Bible. Don't give up on them. Christ can transform them. Look at verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. So he's on the cross, he's dehydrated, and he says, I thirst. That fulfills another Old Testament prophecy. My strength has dried up like a potsherd, that means a broken piece of dry pottery, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You, the Father, lay me, the Son, in the dust of death. So he's on the verge of death, he cries out, I thirst, verse 29, a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they, the soldiers, put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch, and they held it up to his mouth, and so there's a jug, right, of sour wine, the soldiers hear Jesus say I thirst, they pour, they soak the sponge in that sour wine, they they take a hyssop branch, They put it, fix it on the hyssop branch. They lift it up to his parched lips. This time, he he rejected it earlier. This time he receives it, which fulfills another Old Testament prophecy. For my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Prophecy after prophecy, fulfilled in detail. Last verse. Please stay with me all the way to the end here. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, can you guys shout out the next three words? Go ahead. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. That English phrase, it is finished, in the Greek, it's tetelestai. Regarding that beautiful, powerful word, Chuck Swindoll wrote this. He said, archaeologists have found papyri tax receipts with Tetelestai written across them, meaning paid in full. And so here's my question: you can answer out loud. What is the debt that we owe for the sins that we have committed? It's death. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. If you're new to the Bible, that's physical death, right? We're all growing old, we're all gonna die. But it's also spiritual death, which is not annihilation. It's eternal separation from God in a place called hell, right? That's the bad news. The Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus loves you and me so much that he received the death penalty in our place and he paid for our sins in full to tell us die. That's what he shouts from the cross. It's finished. The Apostle Paul put it this way. For our sake, he, the Father, made him, the Son, to be sin, who knew no sin. Now, real quick, ontologically, that can't happen because Christ is sinless. So we're talking judicially. God, the Father, is a righteous judge, and sin is a crime that's got to be paid for. So not only is God loving but he's just and this is why Christ died. This is what I didn't get when I was 17 years old and I finally got it when someone gave me a gospel tract when I accepted Christ as my savior and my Lord. And so for our sake the Father made the Son to be sin who knew no sin, why? So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so this is such good news. It's called the great exchange. That when anybody, anywhere, turns to Christ in repentance and in faith, receiving him as the Savior and Lord of their lives, guess what he does? He says, I've always loved you, and now I take away your sins, past, present, future and I give you my righteousness my perfect righteousness it's a beautiful perfect white spotless white robe and when we stand in the father's presence he no longer sees our sins they've been washed away in the blood now he sees Christ's righteousness and he says I'll accept you in to my abode